Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you. Without a strong rhyme to step to. J.F. and I have been on a break from the show for more than a month. A much-needed break, as we were both pretty exhausted by the end of 2023. But we're rested, recharged, and ready to begin our seventh year of podcasting, if you can believe that. Doesn't feel like it's been that long, but time flies when you're having fun. Anyway. Last fall, I asked J.F. a question. If you had a time machine capable of making only a single return trip, what historical scene would you choose to visit? My question suggested another one, though. What exactly do we mean by a scene? As so often happens, we hashed it out on Patreon, writing one of those dueling banjos essays where each of us takes a turn thinking through some idea or problem. I'll note in passing that if you like the ideas we develop on the show, you really should think about becoming a Patreon supporter. The essays we write, as well as the bonus episodes we record and the in-person events we hold, are seedbeds for the things we discuss in this, the flagship show, and they allow our listeners to follow the progression of our notions, if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd like to do. Case in point, this episode is about Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell a graphic novel of the Whitechapel murders that was written in installments over about a decade, finally being published in full in 1999. But this episode is also about scenes. In this case, Victorian London in 1888, the year of Jack the Ripper. And that dueling banjos piece we did back in fall 23 is an attempt to sort out what we might mean by that word, scene. As I reference that Patreon essay more than once in this episode, I thought I ought to explain what I wrote in it, for the benefit of those unlucky enough not to be Weird Studies Patreon subscribers. In recent sociological literature, the term scene is used to denote the urban geography within which human patterns of consumption and leisure play themselves out. In the article Scenes, Social Contexts in an Age of Contingency, you can find the full citation in the show notes, The authors define scenes as, quote, places devoted to practices of meaning-making through the pleasures of sociable consumption. Quote, scenes include the arts, but also cafes, restaurants, sporting events, street life, and more. Scenes join these together, permitting a range of seemingly diverse activities, from sipping coffee to listening to music to reading poetry, to be analyzed as part of one social process. End quote. But J.F. and I supplement this thoroughly materialist idea of scenes with a weirder notion, inspired by the occult speculations of William Gull, who, in real life, was a physician in ordinary to Queen Victoria, and, in From Hell, is Jack the Ripper. Late Victorian London is a scene that grows from a seed of the untimely. This kind of scene might as easily go backward in time as forwards, 
Moore and Campbell's From Hell gives us a double vision of contemporary London and the London of Jack the Ripper. Time is palimpsest. And on this account, perhaps Victorian London was already something scrawled over an older message, itself scrawled over something older yet. I like to imagine that such a message is a very old, perhaps ageless being, an intelligent entity, like one of Jung's autonomous complexes that seek to clothe themselves in a poet's words. The kind of autonomous complex I'm calling a scene manifests in a city, though, or as a city. Just as an autonomous complex disposes itself through the various parts and aspects of a poem, so might a similar being express itself in the beaches, cafes, restaurants, sporting events, and street life of a city neighborhood, and, ultimately, in the lives and works of those human beings who find themselves in that environment. But it's been a while since you've heard a new flagship episode of Weird Studies, and perhaps you are impatient to begin. So let us delay no longer. On with the show, and Happy New Year. I had the thought that I could learn astrology actually going out and observing the stars like our ancient ancestors did. Mm -hmm. And? And I didn't get so far as doing it once, not one time, <laughs> did I observe the stars. I know what you mean. Oh, these, these highfalutin ideas. These projects of esoteric self-improvement. It's funny because I was just reading... Um, uh, well, I've been reading from hell, as you have, uh, and so thinking about Alan Moore, and I remember this interview he gave where he said that on his 40th birthday, he decided to become a magician. It was almost kind of like as a lark, you know, you're sitting with his daughter and some friends in a pub, and he's like, I'm a magician now. And then he fully committed to it. And when I turned 40, I made the same resolution and it lasted all of, well, however much time it took me to finish my pint. And then I forgot all about it. Yeah. I've had so many of those kind of false starts. The yeah. fact is a practice can move mountains. You know, if you do a little bit every day and never skip a day, you will make huge strides in whatever it is you're doing, whatever that thing is. And yet mm -hmm. the trick is regularity, energy, intelligence, yeah. uh, enthusiasm, all of these things will burn away like the morning mist if you yeah. don't just do it all the time, every day or almost every day. And that's the hard bit. And, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons why hitching your wagon to a, a tradition helps because then you're not alone. It helps to be part of a absolutely a group of people who working. It's it's working solo that's difficult, you know. When when the pandemic hit, I remember thinking, I'm going to have a lot of free time. I'm going to learn ancient Greek. Oh look, there's a, this great professor at Stanford or Yale or something who's put all of his classes online. So I did that for a couple of days. I was enjoying it. 
then I just forgot. I just forgot that I was doing that. <laughs> it wasn't that I gave up. I just forgot. And two months later, I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I started to learn ancient Greek. So it's good to be part of an ambiance or a scene, one might say, where things, there's a way of doing things or there's a certain expectation. And that helps to remind you of your own um, intentions sometimes. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an interesting notion. The idea that a scene could be a kind of assemblage, a mutually interdependent networked assemblage of human beings and material affordances. This is something I wrote about in my Patreon blog post on scenes that we wrote all the way back, I think, in yeah. September. So you're just beginning to think about the ideas around the episode we are currently recording uh, all the way back then. I remember writing about scenes sort of in this way, drawing a little bit on contemporary sociological literature. But, you know, in the context of the present conversation, one thing that a scene, such an assemblage, one thing it does is somewhat like what being part of a congregation does or being in a band mm -hmm. or something. And like you are surrounded by people who are giving you the cues to continue doing the things regularly on a daily basis that you need to do in order to transform into whatever it is you're going to be. But if you were like a beatnik making the Greenwich Village scene after World War II or whatever, choose your favorite artistic cultural scene, like let's say you, you're a poet or you're a composer, you're some manner of artist, your art is going to take on certain characteristics. I mean, it's kind of obvious by virtue of the people that you see every day, by virtue of your social encounters, even the material places where those encounters happen, like a certain bar, like the White Horse Tavern, to stick with my Greenwich Village example. It's perhaps accurate to say that in such a situation, who you are or who you become is very much a function of the city or the physical locale, the neighborhood, where a geography is making you what you are. That's an interesting notion to me. Yeah. That's why I moved out of Montreal. <laughs> oh, is that a fact? Yeah. I lived there for th almost three years in the late aughts. And, um, I remember realizing one day that this was, you know, there's a term from, uh, this is from the Edo culture in Japan, like feudal Japan. They had a term called the floating city. Have you ever heard about this? No. It was basically a decadent phase in Japanese cultural history. And the floating city was this idea, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I was acquainted with this idea, but it was basically a kind of a decadent art movement. That was centered, of course, in urban areas. And the idea of the floating city was this idea of like this artistic ambiance that these artists generated and, and inhabited. And um, I had the feeling in Montreal that I was in a floating city, that I myself was floating. And I, it, it just wasn't a scene that was conducive to my personally being productive. <laughs> You know, I was in a band, I was doing huh. things, I was, I was doing things, but it just seemed, it just felt aimless. I know that this is not the case for everyone in Montreal, of course, but for me, the much more dynamic or, uh, let's just say it, uh, the more commercially oriented ambiance of Toronto was better for me personally, even though hmm. Montreal was a much hipper place to be living at that time. 
is that because Toronto being a rather more prosaic place that in Toronto you were not in the same danger of being kind of enfolded and yeah. wrapped up in the emergent creative mind of the scene? I think so, yeah. Maybe that sense of floating is a sense of like being pulled off your own moorings and being wrapped up in other directions, like yeah. other people's directions become your own. Yeah. And I think that's part of the charm of a scene is that you're part of something. But in any scene, soon enough, a certain set will rise, you know, a certain kind of dramatis personae that come to define and determine there are, you know, every scene has its priests. And for some reason, I, you know, it's funny. I think it's a long standing thing with me. I, I've always longed to be part of a scene, but I've never felt like I belonged in one. I guess the closest I came was that time. And I felt I, <laughs> once I experienced it, I found it incredibly uncomfortable hmm. <laughs> and just wanted to be on my own. Right. Mm. Um, so I think in, Tor in Toronto is not, it's prosaic. Yeah, I guess it is in a sense compared to Montreal, but it's funny for a large city, it has a lot of space. You have a lot of inner space to think and to dream things. I find, I think that's even more true in Ottawa where I live now, which is a bureaucratic city. So it seems like here, the new sphere is just like clean. It's <laughs> this refined air. There's <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of room to roam imaginally in a city that is not particularly known for its artistic kind of uh, busyness. I get what you're saying. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. No, in Montreal, you would be on the creative scene. You would just be constantly smelling other people's imaginal bad breath. Yeah. <laughs> or good just, breath. Uh, you know, yeah. or perfume. It doesn't matter. It's a question of space. It's something I had to learn over time about myself personally. You know, my brother lives in Montreal and he's deeply entrenched and rooted in that scene and uh, it works for him, you know? Mm. So mm. it's funny because you picked Greenwich Village in the late 40s, early 50s as your scene, which, and that yeah. truly is a scene. I kind of like, hmm, totally misconstrued the idea and picked Victorian London in general as my scene, but it doesn't really well, so quite glad you, fit. I'm so glad you did though. I, yeah, but we'll have to be flexible in what we mean by the word, right? Because yeah. I think you're properly using the word scene to denote a particular urban environment that belongs at a specific, to a specific time, specific place, and that has to do with some kind of aesthetic aspiration. Whereas I'm talking about a time that when you look back on it, coalesces into a kind of world. But within Victorian London, there were many, many scenes, you know, I could have picked, sure. oh, the decadent scene of late Victorian London. But I just chose the city because the question I asked myself when we started talking about this pair of episodes we're doing now, the question I asked myself was, if I had a time machine that could go to one place, where would I go? And I eventually alighted on this particular moment. There's something incredibly compelling to me about Victorian London for all kinds of reasons, some of which we'll no doubt will we share with many of our listeners. But there's also something undiscovered about it, something I feel there's a futurity to it. That's what I was writing about in that exchange we had. It's hmm. like we missed something. There was a signal then. And we keep going back to it because we're trying to figure out 
what that signal was and what it meant. That's how I feel about that time. So it's yep. more like for anthropological reasons that I want to go to that scene and uh, try to jam yeah. Victorian London into this this concept we're building. But but you know, I think that there is a kind of deep commonality between our respective picks. Yeah, I'm hewing a little bit more to the, I don't know, I guess a classical notion of it, like an artistic scene, not only a, a particular point in space-time coordinates to which one might set one's time machine, but also an artistic world that kind of emerges from that time and place. And as you say, yours is kind of broader, you said anthropological. But at the same time, I think what both of our picks have in common is a feeling that there is a meaning to that mm. time, or, or not even a meaning, just like a sense of what it is like to have been in that time, or what that time was like, mm -hmm. that has only really become clear in hindsight. This is true, of course, of many things in life, but like there's a kind of imaginal truth yeah. that has emerged like a face in a drying Polaroid photograph, but that process has taken a long time. Yes. And in a certain sense, that face is ours. Like we keep finding ourselves in these scenes. One way you could define like what we mean by a scene is a, a scene is something that we keep almost compulsively coming back to or returning to in order to find something that eludes us. And that something so often is us. Whatever the signal is, I love that you used the word signal. Whatever signal is being beamed out from these scenes, one thing you could think of is actually these scenes are like radio receivers that pick up a signal, but the signal is perhaps extra temporal. We're talking about space-time coordinates to which we could set our time machine. But that signal, that sense of what it is that is expressing itself through a scene seems to be something that, in a sense, stands outside of time. And certainly Agreed. the book that we're looking at today, Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell, a masterpiece of comics fiction. Not comic, uh, except grimly at certain moments. <laughs> yeah, there are some funny jokes in there. But uh, yeah, a graphic novel, I think, explicitly plays with such notions. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, there's differences in, in how we responded to this prompt, like pick a scene and we're going to talk about it. But I wouldn't be surprised if our conversations, both this one on From Hell and Associated Fictions, I know you've been looking at Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I've been yeah. spending an awful lot of time rereading Sherlock Holmes stories, ancillary Victorian fictions. I have no doubt that in the conversation today and also in the next one, we will find all kinds of connections between our respective choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm glad that you think that way, because I'm looking at the exchange we had and I'm finding, I mean, even then we were finding, I mean, you responded to my initial post. So you were finding all the points of commonality and the kind of connections between our ideas. You know, the question was simply at first, the question is like, if you could go to any time and place, where would you go? And I said, Victorian London, but of course, Victorian London is an object of the past. And one of the th observations I made in my post was that the strange thing about the past is that substantially speaking, 
it is made of the same stuff as any memory or fantasy. It is imaginal. We don't have time machines. We can't go and look at the past. The past is remembered. The past is imagined. And so a funny thing happens with a historical period, especially when as rich as the Victorian era, specifically in London, and that's that the happenings of that time, the actual historical events, for example, the Whitechapel murders of 1888, and the imaginings of that time, for instance, the imagined character who is Sherlock Holmes. When a time has ended, we look back and these two dimensions have collapsed into one. So 21% of people, and one survey I, I looked at from 2011, believe that Sherlock Holmes was an actual historical personage. And I think they're right, in a sense. <laughs> um, I mean, for us, Sherlock Holmes is no more imaginal nor less imaginal than Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, they mm, yeah. they all exist now in that space, that imaginal space of memory and dream. And so in this collapsing of the imaginal and the actual that happens to the past, there's a way in which the past is available to us now in a way that it wasn't then, is what I'm saying. And the reason that From Hell is so such a great work to draw on to talk about this is that Jack the Ripper is a perfect example of a kind of entangled entity that exists both imaginally and historically in equal measure. There was a murderer. We don't know who that murderer was. But Jack the Ripper is uh, an imaginal creature, yeah. a person that people imagined um, and continue to imagine who is just as real as the physical murderer. So Jack the Ripper is kind of an anomalous character that gives us, I think, some insight into the nature of the past as such, that the past is both remembered and imagined and therefore yep. stands outside of time for that reason. And there's something about that arrangement that you've just described, something both imaginal and remembered and thereby something that stands out of time. There's something about that that compels a repetitive even compulsive return to the past. This is something mm -hmm. I wrote about in a chapter of my book, Dig, Sound and Music and Hip Culture. It's an academic monograph. I wrote about the intellectual and cultural history of hipness, realizing that that, like any number of other terms from our culture, has a history and can be historicized. And so that's some stuff that I did in the earlier part of my career. I published it about 11 years ago. And in one of the chapters, I'm talking about a set of acetates by John Clellan Holmes, a less known but still fairly important member of the beat circle, the New York beat circle of writers of whom William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac are by far the most famous members. And these acetates, you know, an acetate is a kind of recordable shellac disc, like old-fashioned 78 RPM shellac discs, except they're blank. And if you had an acetate cutter, you had something that would cut a groove in these blank acetates. You could make a little record. This was what you could use to record things before recordable tape became widely available right at the end of the 1940s. And these recordings were made in John Clellan Holmes' New York City apartment 
his brother-in-law, I think, had this big cumbersome acetate cutting machine that he'd left behind. And so Holmes and his friends, Kerouac, Ginsburg, et cetera, had a lot of fun getting drunk and recording themselves, singing along to the radio, reading their works, sometimes just playing music. And you can hear Kerouac excitably drumming along in the background. And these acetate recordings, they're preserved. And uh, I have digital transcriptions of them, you can find the finding aid online. You might think like, ah, mother load of forgotten, like a forgotten source for yeah. understanding the beat generation, right? But they're actually kind of opaque documents because they're just sort of like a jumble of overheard snatches at parties and bits of music and occasional rather ludicrous attempts at singing and improvising jazz. None of these guys could carry a tune in a paper bag. And anyway, I wrote this whole chapter really very much about memory. And sorry, I, I, that was a somewhat lengthy digression. I'll loop it back to what we were talking about before. I kept thinking about how something about finding recordings, audio recordings from an era where you don't expect to find them. Like nowadays, it's the easiest thing in the world to record yourself. But in 1948, that was an exotic experience. Mm -hmm. And these guys are reacting to it like somebody catching a glimpse of themselves in a mirror for the first time. It's like they can't get over how they're using this device, an audio recording device that captures, and they're thinking about this explicitly, like not just words, but also the motions of their emotion, you know, traces right. of their soul. And so they're like actually imagining that these recordings could be not a representation of their soul, but a trace of it, like footprints in the snow. And as a Latter-day researcher, I was entirely intoxicated by that notion. There is something about like the fine grain of the voice carried across the decades and allowing yourself to listen to this stuff. There's a kind of ugh, a, uh, an endlessly baited hook. Like you're just always on the hook. You're always going after chasing a kind of historical presence. Uh, you are mm -hmm. there like somehow it's as if you actually could use these recordings or audio recordings generally as a kind of time machine. It's something that would actually transport you into the lived heart of this scene. Yeah. And yeah. I write eventually that this is a fata morgana. This is just kind of an illusion that you can't really do this, but there's something about the nature of audio recording that's always baiting the hook and making you feel like that ultimate intimacy with the past is is possible, that it's always available. And so when I say that, like, so much of our feeling about these scenes has to do with a kind of passion for retrieval, an attempt to peer within the gloom of the past and actually get to the heart of the real thing. Mm. You know, it's, since that's impossible, we keep trying again and again and again. And maybe we feel like sometimes we get a little bit closer, but it will always remain just a little bit out of our reach.
in preparation for this, I looked at a bunch of colorized and uh, uh, speed-adjusted footage of the late Victorian era from early uh, cinematographers, including the Lumiere brothers and stuff. And mm. that was really magical. We've all seen the footage, you know, the 18 frames per second sped up kind of footage, uh, grainy black and white. But when you see it colorized properly by someone who, who knows what the colors would have been, there's something absolutely magical about watching this footage. And there are tons of websites and you can find on, on Twitter or whatever it's called, you can find, um, you know, threads that have a bunch of these clips. I had a similar experience watching this footage. I had an experience of being for a moment transported back to that time. Like it just looked like it would have looked, you know, it was, it was mm. so it's the resolution made it real. And there are two prongs to the moment, two aspects to it. The first is an absolute immersion, a moment of recognition when this little boy, this basically a street urchin is looking at the camera and you're looking at the screen and suddenly it's like you're seeing each other through time. Mm. Uh, and it's as real as it gets. You're fully immersed in that other world and that lost world. And no sooner has that happened than, of course, you realize that you're not there. It's like they're almost simultaneous, like you're there and not there at the same time. There was an April Fool's joke once that I don't, some website put out back in the day. It's been 20 years since. And I, I, I say I fell for it. A part of me knew it was bullshit, but I really wanted to believe it was true. And I think I've told you this before. I think it was through the Daily Grail or... Um, 40 and times that put this out. I don't remember, but the story was that these scientists had managed to pick up from the grooves in an ancient Greek vase, mm. minute vibrations, which they were able to translate into some conversation that was happening back when the guy was carving the vase. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like almost like a record needle, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, you know, as, as, as minute as they are, those vibrations exist. Those sounds vibrations were reverberating on some level in the stylus that this craftsman was using to engrave the, the vase. And the claim was that the scientists had managed to decipher those vibrations and isolate them. And then you could hear just a little snippet of conversation in ancient Greek, really grainy. And mm. I just, I thought that was such a cool idea because what it tells you is it's a kind of psychometric idea. It's that the objects around us have in them, inaccessible to us, but they're there anyways, the traces of their history, of their past. And so the past is still present in the materiality of the present. And I love that idea. In a way, what it does is it dispels an illusion we have that the past is cut off from the present. Mm as opposed to being simply an extension of the present that we can't see. Like the past is as present as the back of your house. You're just not right. looking at it now. Right. And that's one of the key ideas in From Hell. William Gull, who is Jack the Ripper in, in the graphic novel, he gets this idea from Howard Hinton, who was a, an esoteric author at the time who talked about the fourth dimension. I'm not even sure if Hinton was a fictional character or not. Probably not. There are very few fictional characters in this, in this graphic novel. But this idea that time is a fourth dimension and that time is a spatial dimension, this is an idea that's central to From Hell. We are not equipped to perceive this dimension. And so we perceive time as moving linearly from future into the past or whatever direction you want to point at. 
But in fact, all time is always present in the same way that the physical universe, as we know it, the three dimensions that we know are present. And if you were able to step outside of time, the entirety of the cosmic construct that is our universe would appear to you all at once. And so you could see that time, a particular time or a particular scene, a particular city at a particular moment in history has a kind of architecture of its own, yes. a kind of four-dimensional architecture. And so in these moments, what you're talking about, the acetates you're talking about, is that's one example, this old colorized footage that's made all the more real by being processed with our present day technologies or this bullshit idea about the Greek vase, they all touch on this idea of time being an extension of the present as opposed to a cut off, non-existent present that once was, but is no longer the case, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, probably unintentionally, you've actually butted up against something very interesting about Sherlock Holmes that I've been thinking about. So I've been rereading a bunch of Sherlock Holmes stories. I couldn't tell you how many times I have reread these things. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is my first literary love, the first set of stories I can remember really loving in an adult way. Yeah, Holmes is was created by Conan Doyle as the very avatar of a kind of new rationality. You know, here was somebody who was doing criminal detection on the level of science. Yeah. Here was somebody who could distinguish hundreds of different kinds of cigar ash because he had trained his observational abilities to the highest possible extent and furthermore had the imagination that would allow him to do something with these observed details. And one of the scène affaire in a Holmes story, one of the genre markers, one almost inevitable markers in a Holmes story is early on, Holmes will perform a minor feat of deduction, usually something to do with Watson. Like uh, he'll tell Watson, oh, I can tell you've been sick recently. How the devil do you know such a thing, Holmes? You know, there's always that scene. And then yeah. Holmes explains that, well, I can see that the bottom of your slippers are burned. You must have been warming your feet by the fire, but it's been dry. So I can exclude the possibility that you were drying your feet by the fire, et cetera, et cetera. In those moments, he's always talking about how objects like a hat that somebody leaves behind at the scene of a crime or whatever, how these various objects are imbued with the characters of the people who owned them. Right. You know, he'll say, like, there's no object uh, more illustrative of its owner's tendencies and habits than a watch. And he will tell you all about how he can understand the whole history of Watson's brother from looking at his watch. Well, you were just talking about how we have an idea of objects as being, I'm roughly paraphrasing you, but like kind of almost washed up in the shore of the present, mm -hmm. cast away from their original context, which remain opaque. But the idea that, you know, to use the example of this bullshit story of the vase that had the traces of sounds encoded in the grooves that had been etched in it, that's an emblem of an object very much as Holmes sees objects, as things that are always imbued with a kind of psychical force of those who handled them, impregnated with basically imaginal stuff, right? The stuff of mind. The thing that's interesting to me now is knowing all this stuff about Conan Doyle as a spiritualist. And for a while I was like, well, that's kind of funny that somebody whose great contribution was to give us the 
emblem, the very image of a modern scientific researcher that somebody like that should have believed in fairy photography and, and whatnot. And I realized, though, that Conan Doyle was very much a figure of his time, somebody who thought that fairies and the spirits of the dead and so on were accessible to us, but through a science of the future, that there are methods and knowledges yet unsuspected that would allow us to penetrate the veil and understand things that inhabit, you know, a purely immaterial realm, the spirits of the dead, for example. And so Holmes, in a way, is this like weird blend of kind of Victorian scientism, but also this kind of romantic streak. You know, Holmes is a rationalist built on a romantic chassis. Mm -hmm. And it has so much to do with the idea of science in aid of performing the kinds of imaginal voyaging, the imaginal excavations that we're talking about. So Holmes, interestingly, as a figure of high Victorian London, somebody associated actually with the year 1888, the Ripper year, Holmes is himself kind of an avatar of the style of thought that we ourselves, I think, are probably evincing right now. Yeah, no, it's it's brilliant. Yeah. And you're right. And Holmes, of course, is literally not a scientist, but a detective, right? And mm. the, the figure of the detective is very much a creature of that time. I think that Edgar Allan Poe is credited with having invented the modern detective. We say that they deduce, but they actually... The type of thinking they engage in most spectacularly is abductive reasoning, which is like mm. inferring the past from the signs available in the present. And that is something that is of Jack the Ripper's era. Of course, From Hell is a detective story. In the graphic novel, you follow Inspector Aberleen of uh, Scotland Yard as he investigates using the tools he had at his disposal. At one point, somebody makes the suggestion of like, you know, you should really dust these crime scenes for fingerprints. Yeah, that could really help. And he's like, what a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, so he's no Sherlock Holmes, this guy. Uh, he's a detective figure that's more popular in later detective fiction. He's the more kind of gut feeling, intuitive detective. The point being that there's something about detective work that speaks to what we're talking about here, because it's weird because we're mixing a bunch of different things. We're talking about how objects from the past retain traces of that past, which can be read potentially by someone who is has the, the faculties to do so. But we're also talking about how this whole kind of thinking about time, Alan Moore's From Hell is largely a kind of treatise on the nature of time, is also something that is born in the era we're discussing, in the Victorian era. This is when people start to think about time in ways in which no one had thought of time maybe for quite a while. Although you, if you go back in time, you'll find conceptions of time that are very different from the, the typical kind of conventional modern idea of linear time. If I were to choose the kind of defining figure of the Victorian scene, as I'm imagining it, it would be the figure of the detective, unsurprisingly, the figure of Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes is one of the few Victorians who don't appear in From Hell, no doubt because he doesn't never actually existed. But I, I would have been happy if, you know, in issue, you know, six or seven, we had a brief glimpse of Sherlock Holmes because we see all kinds of other people of that time, um, some of whom occupy that semi-historical, semi-imaginary space 
that Jack the Ripper himself occupies. For example, we meet John Merrick, the elephant man, who plays a mm. role. Now, yeah. the role that John Merrick plays in the story is fictional. It's Alan Moore's own invention. But Alan Moore, in his notes on the story, makes sure to tell you that it's not impossible that William Gull, i.e. Jack the Ripper, might have met John Merrick. It's not impossible, given Gull's being a member of the Freemasons and potentially interested in esoteric history, it's not impossible that William Gull might have seen in John Merrick, the Elephant Man, an incarnation of Ganesh, which is what happens in the story. It's like, it's crazy because he's extrapolating and he's he's engaging, Alan Moore is extrapolating and imagining and, and allowing himself in a way no historian would to just create the past. Yeah. But in a way he hits on the reality of the past that's just simply inaccessible to conventional historians. Yeah. Uh, he's getting at an aspect of that time, which is incredibly relevant to us now, but also probably even would have been relevant to people then. There's something about that untimely dimension of the scene, of the period, of the moment that you were talking about earlier. You know, in a weird way, I'm probably the first person to make this comparison. From Hell reminds me of the web series Yacht Rock, which I made you watch with me. You are the first person ever to make that comparison. <laughs> yeah. We watched uh, that at, the co- at, my, uh, at my cottage. Uh, no, last, actually, it was, it was uh, when we were in Scotland. Oh, right. It was our last, one of our last days in Scotland. I remember now. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And I, okay. So for the uninitiated, Yacht Rock is a series of short videos, each of them about five minutes long. I think there's 12 of them that were made in the aughts and in either very early days of YouTube or possibly pre-YouTube. It was a web series done in a purposefully kind of like low production values kind of way. It is to my sense of humor, very, very funny. It takes- Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, it takes the doings of session musicians and, you know, people you've heard of, like the Doobie Brothers, the guys from Toto, Michael McDonald, Kenny Loggins. It takes musicians who are all like kind of loosely part of a very amorphous late 70s Los Angeles music scene. And these are guys who are all making adult contemporary sort of like soft rock which have lately been dubbed Yacht Rock. And all of their little stories are absurd stories that touch down on esoteric matters of historical fact. Like weird little details of music history. For example, that members of the Eagles are singing backup vocals in the Steely Dan song FM. And they concoct this whole cock and bull story about how the Eagles were like meathead jocks from an 80s teen sex comedy beating up on the hapless nerds, Walter Becker and Don Fagan, the the Steely Dan guys, stealing their lunch money and shit. And anyway, they have this whole like bitter feud that culminates in Steely Dan administering a merciless baseball bat beat down on the Eagles and force them to sing backup vocals in FM. Shit like that, right? Yeah, exactly. You have this crazy stories that touch down on matters of known historical fact. And Michael McDonald, who's sort of like 
Of course, people who know this music know Michael McDonald, one smooth motherfucker. He was, you know, sang in a bunch of uh, soft rock hits of the 70s and 80s, not least What a Fool Believes, which we've even talked about in our Fool episode. Anyway, Michael McDonald, somebody once asked him what he thought about the show that was made about his life, but is a total fantasy or like a ridiculous fantasy. And he says, um, hold on for a sec. I have to find my notes. Uh, yeah. Somebody in a 2008 interview, Michael McDonald was asked, have you ever owned a yacht? And McDonald answered, no, but I thought Yacht Rock, the web series was hilarious and uncannily, you know, those things always have a little bit of truth to them. It's kind of like when you get a letter from a stalker who's never met you. They somehow hit on something, and you have to admit they're pretty intuitive. Nice. There is this way, this method of fiction, even if it's like a bunch of people fucking around and making a funny five-minute video. Somehow, through that method, you can arrive at a kind of poetic truth of a historic fact. That's an interesting thought. And I, I feel like From Hell is a massive wager on that method. Yeah, you know, a wager that completely pays off because I do think that regardless of whether you think that William Gull was Jack the Ripper, which I don't, and I'm not sure that uh, Alan Moore does either. He is actually quite agnostic about it in his appendices where he sort of explains a little bit of his thinking. Well, he's honest about his conjectures, but he has in interviews said that that's where he put his money. So he does on, believe on William Gull yeah, being on the, William Gull being yeah the Ripper yeah, yeah yeah I guess what I would say is the question of like yes but what does he really think who does he really think Jack the what Ripper he really was? thinks is that he doesn't know yes <laughs> and that's and what I all of that, us should really think <laughs> I think the question is not a terribly interesting one I think what's more interesting is asking what is the truth that he was able to arrive at through his imaginative method. Exactly, exactly. Because, I mean, he goes all out. It's, you know, you said it was a masterpiece. You're absolutely right. It's a masterpiece for several reasons. It's blending of official history, conventional history, the type of history you'd read of, about if the New York Times were to do a kind of a retrospective on Jack the Ripper. And esoteric history and esoteric ideas is amazing. And the way he's capturing a whole era through the lens of this, you know, relatively small little series of events in the fall of 1888 is amazing. And the way he connects it with these larger historical forces, you know, one of my favorite types of stories, they're entries in the annals of cosmic history, not just human history. It's in the very first frame of the whole book, chapter one prologue, the old men on the shore, the first image we see is a dead seagull. That's almost too obvious, right? Um, mm. Jack the Ripper was William Gull. But of course, the implication there is that there's a connection between this dead seagull on the shore and this guy who killed, you know, five or more women in London many years before. The whole story unfolds at the level of synchronicity. Yes. Names matter. Every frame matters, of course, as usual in Alan Moore. The connections are occurring with such complexity and on so many levels that what we're given in the end is a kind of, it's a book that you got to read frontwards and backwards. You can mm -hmm. look at it from different angles. It is itself an example of time imagined as an architecture. Mm, yeah. In order to do that type of history, 
of course, you would need to resort to fiction. You need to resort to art, to poetry. Why don't we break down the story? Now, keep in mind that the story is taken over from a book called Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution by a journalist named Stephen Knight. Yeah. This is one theory of a great many, but this is a theory that grew up out of a number of theories. There was a sort of a turn in Ripperology, I think, from the 60s onwards, if I'm remembering correctly. I was reading Colin Wilson's book on Jack the Ripper, and he does a kind of a survey of a lot of Ripper theories. And he makes an interesting point that you see an uptick in royal theories or theories of Jack the Ripper as a gentleman or maybe a surgeon or even a royal kind of more recently. Mm -hmm. This particular theory emerged apparently from a guy named Joe Sickert or Joseph Sickert, who claimed to be a descendant of Walter Sickert, a painter who has a certain kind of durable place in the Ripper mythos. The story emerges that what happened is that Eddie, the Duke of Clarence, Victoria's grandson, was a somewhat soft-headed and soft-hearted, sentimental, bisexual... Dandy. A bit of a dandy. Mr. Collar and Cuffs, I think he was nicknamed. Yeah. He supposedly had a romantic liaison with a woman who worked in a sweets shop across from a male bordello that he frequented. And she fell in love and, in fact, were secretly married in a Catholic service. She bore him an illegitimate daughter. And Queen Victoria, on finding this, ordered her to be put out of the way. So some violent operation was performed on her to turn her into an imbecile. The child was put into the care of somebody else. But then the story goes, a quartet of Whitechapel prostitutes learn about this or they figure it out and they decide that they are going to extort money from the royal family in exchange for their silence. At which point, Queen Victoria through, I don't know, Masonic intermediaries, Freemasonry plays a very large role in this story, secures the services of William Gull, the court physician. Yeah, he's her physician in ordinary Yeah, at yeah. the time. And the idea is that the Masons basically hatch a plot and Gull is the, the spear tip. He's the guy who has to do the dirty work to hunt down and kill these prostitutes and make it look like it's the work of a demented killer. However, Gull, as it turns out, takes Masonic esotericism far more seriously than his brethren do. And he yeah. is convinced that his task is a divinely appointed one that it's actually not even that important that it's Queen Victoria that tells him to do it. His ultimate authority, the authority to which he reports ultimately, is a kind of triple god. Yeah. Jabulan. Jabulan, yeah. Yahweh, Osiris, and Baal. 
which we get an unforgettable glimpse of early in this story when Gull has a stroke and we are shown this impossibly grand vision. It's an incredible drawing. By the way, we're talking a lot about Alan Moore, but so much of the artistic power of this book comes from Eddie Campbell's drawings. And in yeah. such a frame as the one that reveals the vast, free-aspected god Jabulon is wonderful, but by no means unusual example of how Campbell's able to suggest through the power of his pen things that seem like they would be incommunicable or even beyond imagination, but he manages to give us the sense of a kind of gasping profundity of the glimpse of this triple God. Anyway, Gull believes that his divinely appointed task is to murder these prostitutes in order to realize a divine architecture. You know, to jump back to what JF was saying earlier in this conversation, if you imagine some standpoint from which all things, all things that have happened in time, as it were, have all happened at once, if you could step outside of time and see everything that ever happened as a crystallized object, then you could see traceries in time. An event in 1788, there's a, a series of violent and probably sexual crimes uh, perpetrated in the streets of London. And then exactly a century later, you see a series of violent and probably sexual crimes committed in London. Again, the Whitechapel murders. And if you were able to perceive time from a kind of fourth dimensional vantage point, if you were able to perceive the structure that is etched in time, you could see like a rising arch right? You could see yeah. this form. And the whole idea of Freemasonry, or at least of esoteric Freemasonry, is that there is an ancient fellowship of builders, the Dionysiac architects. Who built the Temple of Solomon. That's right. And the Tower of Babel. And they go back to at least a thousand BCE, a group of craftsmen whose skill goes beyond mere workmanship, and they are in fact privy to the truth of the universe. And they understand what Plato understood in the Timaeus, that the universe is built of proportions. It's built out of forms, and that the human is a microcosm of those forms. And that if you can create buildings, architectures, fashioned on the proportions of the human body, then you could build buildings that in themselves would materialize eternal truths. And these would be truths that could be impressed irresistibly on the human. Simply by being present in one of these buildings, the secrets of its construction, its divine proportions would ineluctably affect your own uh, morality, your own temperament, your own outlook, your actions. So I want to actually read something from The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall, which is a huge compendium of esoteric lore created by, I believe, a Canadian writer in the early 20th century. He quotes uh, Vitruvius on the subject of symmetry on exactly this point of what like architecture means. This is on page 570 of the uh, Tarcher Penguin edition that I have. 
The design of a temple depends on symmetry, the principles of which must be carefully observed by the architect. They are due to proportion. Proportion is, a, I'm, and I omitted a Greek word that I cannot read from this passage. <laughs> proportion is a correspondence among the measures of the members of an entire work and of the whole to a certain part selected as standard. From this result, the principles of symmetry. Without symmetry and proportion, there can be no principles in the design of any temple. That is, if there is no precise relation between its members, as in the case of those of a well-shaped man. For the human body is so designed by nature that the face, from the chin to the top of the forehead and the lowest roots of the hair, is a tenth part of the whole height. The open hand, from the wrist to the tip of the middle finger, is just the same. The head, from the chin to the crown, is an eighth. And with the neck and shoulder from the top of the breast to the lowest roots of the hair is a sixth, and so on. It keeps going through a whole series of proportions of this kind. And the idea, as Manly P. Hall says, is that the edifices raised by the Neonisiac builders were indeed sermons in stone. The idea is that they're creating these buildings that have this extraordinary direct force on the human. What goal? wonders is, what if such buildings are made not only with stone and available to our ordinary senses, but also of time? Yeah, events. And of, yeah. Yes, events. And he yeah. sees his ultimate role to participate in the construction of just such an edifice. Yeah. And that is his motivation for going about the streets of Whitechapel with his servant, Netley, a coachman. He takes Netley on a tour of London where they, they visit um, you know, Hawksmoor's famous churches, um, all this kind of strange... The Christ Church at Spittle, Spitalfields. Yeah, Is it Spitalfields also, or Spitalfields? I don't know. I've always said Spitalfields, but I'm not a Londoner. Um, the, uh, like Cleopatra's Needle and how you can actually draw a kind of pentagram by pinpointing these locations. I don't know if that's true. I'm assuming it is. And I particularly like how Natalie, when he starts to understand the truth that Gull is showing him, that in fact, the ordinary everyday London streets that he's traveled every day of his life are arrayed in this kind of esoteric geometry. When Natalie starts to see that he is trapped like a fly in amber within this kind of vast multi-dimensional occult conspiracy, he vomits. Yeah. Yeah, I love that part. I have Pete Ackroyd's book, Hawkmore. I haven't read it yet, though. It's been sitting on my desk, and Peter Biebergall sent me this. Mm -hmm. Hawksmore by Peter Ackroyd, which I think it touches on this idea of the psychogeography of London and all that. But anyways, at one point, uh, Gull explains to Netley that his purpose is to ensure that the unfinished architecture of time, basically the project that his Masonic ancestors started, is completed because it's under threat. It's under threat because of the Illuminati. It's under threat because of the theosophists. Basically, William Gull wants to ensure that the male domination of women continues into the 20th century. That's yes, essentially that's right. what he argues. That's the purpose of this edifice. Call back to our episode on um, mumbo jumbo, Ishmael Reed, where we talked about the kind of atonism, right? This kind of uh, yeah. uh, ancient Egypt born 
homocentric, patriarchal way of thinking, day world thinking, sun worship, as opposed to moon worship and all that. So Alan Moore is kind of drawing on that to say that Gull was a representative of the Atonists, and he's committing these murders in order to ensure that the current superstructure, the current cosmic power structure on Earth is maintained. And it's funny because at on a few occasions, he's given a glimpse of the future. In fact, during one of the murders, and I have to say that the, the scenes of the murders and the mutilations are extremely detailed and gory and hard to look at, to watch, to read. Uh, yeah. But during one of these ritualistic murders, he suddenly is transported to 1989 or whatever it was, 1991 by that point, uh, London in a corporate office and he sees the future and he doesn't like what he sees at all. <laughs> he does not approve of the future that he is himself creating. But the idea is that Jack the Ripper is the midwife of the 20th century, is that in committing yes. these murders, he created the kind of ethos or sub-ethos or sub-zeitgeist that would dominate the 20th century and determine its course. I think that, of course, you can read it esoterically as Alan Moore did, but there are many ways in which the Ripper murders were a kind of like foreshadowing of 20th century culture. There's a moment in the graphic novel after the first murder, I think it is, where the police officers go back to the murder scene and there's all kinds of people there, like getting their picture taken at the spot yeah. and the, the kind of the growth of celebrity culture, the growth of of the, the society of the spectacle, one might say, you know, to, mm -hmm. to use Guy Debal's term. It's all born in part at this moment, even if you don't buy into the Masonic theories or the the idea that Jack the Ripper, whoever he was, was motivated by esoteric ideas. There's a way in which it is true to say those murders were instrumental to the shaping of the Western mind in the 20th century, I think. Colin Wilson argues, and I don't have a knowledge of the history of crime really at all, so I, I have no way of uh, saying whether I think Wilson is right about this, but he said that prior to the Ripper murders, sex crimes as we understand them, like sexualized serial homicide of sort that fills the papers today, he's like, that was something new on the scene. Yeah. That a sexualized and ritualized killing of women was, uh, he's like, there had always been sexual violence, rapes and whatnot. And he talks in some detail about the remarkably casual attitude that uh, people seem to have about that. But like, apropos what you were saying about the Ripper murders as being kind of, I don't know, almost a, how did you put it? Kind of crucible or catalyst or something. Yeah. Catalyst. Yeah. For yeah. the, for the 20th century. What would we make of that fact, if it is indeed a fact, that the Ripper murders represent something new on the scene, something ubiquitous now, but unique at the time? Perhaps there's something to this notion of, of a kind of a seed of something planted and then bearing a, a kind of horrible fruit in a century and a half since. Yeah, I, I think so. And as, as usual, I mean, the new manifests in a multifarious way when it does. And so you could look to the Jack the Ripper murders, or you could look to the writings of Sigmund Freud, who, in a voice that was heard around the world, certainly throughout the West, he 
made a connection between love and death that I don't think had been made as explicitly as it was by him. You know, Freud really, Eros and Thanatos and the way they join and um, resemble, mirror one another, Freud's famous quip that life is about one thing, death, that sexuality, the sexuality involved in a birth and the violence involved in a death are connected. Prismatically speaking, it's part of this new idea that's emerging at the time and that will play such a huge role in the 20th century. You can't undertake a proper study of the psychology of Nazism without accounting for its weird marriage of love and death. Mm. And then, of course, you can go back and see that throughout history, but I'm talking about the idea. The idea is something that really, I think, was being hatched at this time. And I think that Jack the Ripper had a part to play in that, just as Sigmund Freud did, you know, to name just two instances of how this weird new idea emerges. And here I'm, I'm trying to inch our way back to your remark in your Patreon post that perhaps a scene, you know, thinking now of Victorian London as a scene, uh, as an architecture whose standard piece, whose standard element would be these Ripper murders, thinking about how a scene might be the manifestation of a kind of power, a kind of archetype or God or something. And that there's something about this God of love and death that finds its kind of portrait in this foggy, dismal, optimistic slash pessimistic, uh, almost contradictory world that is Victorian London. Hmm. I'm going to read something. It seems, of course, slightly ridiculous to read from a comic. Obviously, you're not getting the visual element, but Alan Moore is such a superb writer. And one thing I want to note in passing is how effectively he creates a voice for William Gull. Mm-hmm. You know, William Gull emerges as a really impressive villain, a villain all the more villainous because he is consumed by a sense of purpose, of higher yeah. purpose, and has an extremely developed intelligence that allows him to pursue his purpose. After the last murder, so the five canonic Jack the Ripper murders, the last of them, do you remember the name? Mary of the Kelly. Woman? Mary Kelly, that's right. Mary Kelly, there's the only murder that took place indoors in this low tenement where Kelly was living. And so the assailant had a couple of hours to really uh, take the body apart. And it's a particularly gruesome and horrifying scene, even by the standards of serial murder. Anyway, it's the climax of the story in a way, and is presented very much as a kind of magical working where Gull performs acts of such fantastical bloodiness and violence that it allows him to kind of penetrate the veil of time. And he finds himself launched forward about a century. And as you say, he finds himself in a modern office suite, which in the illustration looks pretty much like an office of the present day. And Gull, standing there, soaked in blood, wearing his incongruous Victorian clothing, obviously an imaginal presence unseen by all the various people running around in the office. And this is what Gull says upon his sort of materialization in this other world, our world. Oh, dear God, dear God, what is this ether I am come upon? What spirits are these laboring in what heavenly light? No, no, this is dazzle, 
but not yet divinity. Nor are these heathen wraiths about me spirits, lacking even that vitality. What, then? Am I, like St. John the Divine, vouchsafed a glimpse of those last times? Are these the days my death shall spare me? It would seem we are to suffer an apocalypse of cockatoos. He's referring to the peculiar hairstyles, punky hairstyles of London at the time. Morose, barbaric children playing joylessly with their unfathomable toys. Where comes this dullness in your eyes? How has your century numbed you so? Shall man be given marvels only when he is beyond all wonder? Your days were born in blood and fires, whereof in you I may not see the meanest spark. Your past is pain and iron. Know yourselves. With all your shimmering numbers and your lights, think not to be inured to history. Its black root suckers you. It is inside you. Are you asleep to it? That cannot feel its breath upon your neck, nor see what soaks its cuffs. See me. Wake up and look upon me. I am come amongst you. I am with you always. So close to my heart and its sentiment. It's horrible to hear Jack the Ripper say such <laughs> true things. <laughs> but this is one of the things about Moore's work here is that he is embracing a kind of like deep and troubling ambiguity. Of course, he does not for a second condone the crimes. In fact, there's a wonderful moment at the end of the graphic novel where now ensconced in an asylum under a false name, William Gull, he's been basically sentenced and sent there by the Masons. As he's dying, he leaves his body and he, and he exists in this kind of hyper-geometric time. And he's mm. able to move back and forth. So we see him, for example, plant the idea for Jekyll and Hyde in the mind of... Um, Robert Louis Stevenson? <laughs> in the mind of Robert Louis Stevenson. Or he inspires serial killers of, of the future. And at one point... At the end, he ends up in Ireland and a woman with children comes out and shoes him off saying, go back to hell, you devil. Mm. And we never know who this woman is, except that Alan Moore kind of gave it away in an interview that he allows for the possibility that the woman who was killed at the end there in the tenement house was actually not Mary Kelly. And of course, she was actually mutilated beyond recognition. But one of Mary Kelly's friends who were staying over and that Mary Kelly got out, got to Ireland and survived. And so <laughs> basically that the ritual did not work. Ha, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's a very touching scene when you see it that way. And so maybe the future that Gull's seeing isn't the future that he created, because if the ritual failed, then what he's seeing is some other future. It's very much opposed to what he would have imagined. Uh, he yeah. was probably imagining something much more like the Third Reich as being yeah. like what the 20th century would be like, which is not to say that the world he does see is perfect. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> 1990s corporate London is not my idea of utopia, but and, but, and that's not also not to say that he doesn't have a point in what he observes in in the people of the present day of the contemporary world when he travels there spiritually there's a great text by jg ballard this is a preface he wrote for crash the 1974 edition of crash the french edition of crash he wrote this new preface for it and i don't know if i've read it on the show before 
but I certainly discussed it in my AI class. I'll just read the very beginning of it, and you'll see, I think, how it aligns with the soliloquy by um, mm. Gull that you just read. So this is Ballard writing in 74. Uh, quote, the marriage of reason and nightmare, which has dominated the 20th century, has given birth to an ever more ambiguous world. Across the communications landscape move the specters of sinister technologies and the dreams that money can buy. Thermonuclear weapon systems and soft drink commercials coexist in an overlit realm ruled by advertising and pseudo events, science and pornography. Over our lives preside the great twin motifs of the 20th century, sex and paranoia. Despite McLuhan's delight in high-speed information mosaics, we are still reminded of Freud's profound pessimism in civilization and its discontents. Voyeurism, self-disgust, the infantile basis of our dreams and longings, these diseases of the psyche have now culminated in the most terrifying casualty of the 20th century, the death of affect. Maybe what William Gull wanted to create, this violent world, uh, this oppressive world, which of course did materialize in the 20th century. I think that what happens in the post-war era is a recoiling from the horror that we suddenly knew ourselves capable of into a kind of affectless state, which becomes the new problem. Mm. So even if the ritual didn't succeed, it was the sheer violence of Gull's vision as later manifested. Because let's not forget that chapter five of From Hell begins with the conception of Adolf Hitler, who was indeed conceived precisely when the murders were happening. So if we want to link Gull's vision to the Third Reich, the kind of horrors of the first half of the 20th century, not that the horrors then ceased to uh, occur, but we tended to watch TV instead of paying attention to them until Vietnam was televised. Anyways, <laughs> the point is, uh, the point is that even if the vision failed, its partial success has ended up exacting a toll on us, a huge cost on us and what J.G. Ballard calls the death of affect. You know, we started off talking about a kind of London of the imagination. 
Yeah. A London against which the Whitechapel murders take place, where London serves as kind of a backdrop, and as it does indeed in this book. I think about like the London that both emerges in the pages of this book and also in Sherlock Holmes and in our general imagination of the time of London in the high Victorian era. One thing that I think makes Victorian London so compulsively interesting, even if you don't care anything about the Ripper murders, is how much our own time feels like kind of a rhyme, a rhyme in time with that epoch. Like when you were visiting us back in the fall when we were doing the Videodrome show, mm -hmm. I remember us talking about the Roman Empire meme, like my daughter was over for dinner and she asked you, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? Yeah. And you were like, yeah, you know, like at least once a week, sometimes like I was thinking about it on the plane ride over here. And she was delighted because she had asked me the same question. I'd given the same response. And apparently there's like a TikTok meme about like how guys think about the Roman Empire all Every the time. Yeah. And she was delighted to find a little bit of reality agreeing with a TikTok meme. But thing with that is I was like, well, you know, there's a reason why it would be Rome and not some other ancient civilization. There's a yeah. reason why it's ancient Rome and not ancient Persia. Right. Because the era of Rome is, of course, very distant to us from time. But Rome feels so much like us in ways that no other civilization does. And this is a truism. I remember my seventh grade history teacher saying this. We are very like the Romans. But it's true. Some cliches are cliches because there's this core of truth to them. This modern, not I'm not just talking modern European civilization. Like I'm not just saying that that's like Rome, where you could point out, well, there's a cultural line of development that led to modern Europe. So sure. No, it's more than that. It's almost like a spiritual affinity, a sense that when we encounter Roman writers, we're encountering a perspective that reminds us of ourselves. Mm -hmm. When you go to a museum and you see Roman housewares, this uncanny feeling of familiarity. I just think that there are certain epochs or scenes that rhyme in time and perhaps because of some kind of fourth dimensional concretization of some hyper dimensional <laughs> architecture. Maybe there's something to that notion. I don't know what it is, but there's this feeling I have that there is some rising arc that Victorian London is a part of and that we're a part of. And I like to think about what it is about the logic of London in this time that reminds me of our own. What constantly surprises me when I read texts written at that time is how incredibly contemporary people thought. Like that's how how contemporarily they thought they thought yeah. they thought in a way that is very very close to how we think, but of course extremely different in some ways. But it's weird because the impression I get when I read Victorian writers is that these were people. Not just them, but the people they're writing about, their characters, the people of that time. They were people who expected the amenities and affordances of a late 20th century slash early 21st century modern life, but didn't have them, but they expected them. So you have all kinds of weird disasters that come as a result of this. For example, when they started to put in water closets in London, like 
actual flushable toilets. It caused a huge, it's called the great stink of 18, I can't remember the year, 1860 something, I'm guessing. Basically, just the sewers backed up. And for months, London was just flooded with human shit um, <laughs> because they all got toilets. Um, it's like they knew they needed toilets, <laughs> but they, they didn't have anything like the infrastructure they needed. So instead of just abandoning the city, which is what would happen today if a city suddenly got flooded with human shit, they clean it up. They find ways of cleaning it up and then making the toilets work. Instead of just throwing away this idea of toilets, they decide to completely transform their sewer system in order to accommodate this new convenience. And, um, I know why. It sucks having a, a cesspool in your basement that night soilmen have to come in and, and, and like shovel out every night, I guess. But this is the way it had always been. The telegraph, the way they talk about the telegraph, well, the telegraph wasn't the internet, but you can already see. Or, for example, this, my, this is my go-to example, the Ouija board. The Ouija board, before it was called a Ouija board, there were many types of Ouija in that time, but also the idea of the Akashic Records, this place that you can mm, astrally right. travel to and access. This is them expecting the internet, which we will yes. not be able to create for another century, but they are living with it. They are assuming it. They're oh, finding ways to manifesting it. They're, in a way, I feel like we, especially of the 21st century, because it took the 20th century to make this happen. But us now, we are living in the dream of Victorian people. I think we're still in that moment. Yeah. I think that if you just peel the surface, the superficialities of our time, what you see is a fog-bound imperial city. And in a way, I feel that the steampunk genre is a way of trying to get at that. And that's why I was talking at the beginning of a signal that we missed. Like there's some unfinished business that makes us continually return to this time and think of it and rethink it, yeah. or yeah. at least for me personally. I know what you mean by Rome. And there are many ways in which, especially I think modern United States has adopted a lot of the ethos of ancient Rome. But that to me feels different from what the Victorian era is for me. The Victorian era is like a piece of toilet paper stuck to the 21st century's shoe. <laughs> and it's just like, it just won't come off. It's just following and trailing us like a, like a trail of slime behind a slug or something. The great genius of later works about the Victorian era, I'm thinking specifically of like The Elephant Man by David Lynch mm. uh, or this, From Hell by Alan Moore. I find that these works are attempts at going back there and catching the signal. You're talking about how, like, you know, maybe you could imagine sort of the Akashic Records or the Telegraph is like imagining the internet before there was any of the intermediary technological steps that would allow the internet to exist. Like, for example, computing. Imagine the internet without there being computers to allow you to imagine the internet. But which, they did have the difference engine, which yes. was a computer. Yeah. And but this is one on. of those things like that steampunk kind of emerges from this collaboration between Bruce Sterling and William Gibson called uh, the difference engine, which imagines that Charles Babbage is basically imagining a computer in the middle of the 19th century. Imagine if that had caught on and people had realized what was possible, right? Well, yeah. That's suggestive. Like, I can't help but feel that Gibson and Sterling had 
plucked from the Akashic record or from some imaginal archive, this notion of computing as this motif that draws a filament thread or a, a, like a flying buttress that connects the 19th century to the present. I think there's something there, there's something mm-hmm. of the logic of computing without the computer or the logic of the internet without any of the things that sustain the internet, including computing. So I was thinking about how when I was reading the Holmes stories or rereading them, I had a similar thought, but thinking of London itself, the city itself as the proto-internet, because Mm. that is so much how it comes out in the Holmes stories. Holmes' skill... And the pleasure, the unique and special piquant pleasure that the home stories provide is a feeling that from this cozy little Warren and 221B Baker Street, Holmes and Watson can sally forth into a city, which is just sort of like the naked city. There's eight million stories in the naked city. I think that was a tagline for a movie from the post-war era. That idea that a city has within it a multitude of stories, and some of these stories intersect in all kinds of dizzyingly complex ways unknown to the city's inhabitants. This idea of the city itself as a kind of sublime profusion of different things happening at the same time, and the idea of the detective as a figure ultimately, it doesn't even have to do with crime. It has ultimately to do with being able to access and read these stories, to find the pathways and the linkages that would allow you to trace from one little pocket world, one little story to another. And this is made global by the fact that London at this time, what it is, is the hub, that the spider at the middle of a vast world crossing web, a worldwide web. A world wide web (laughs) of colonialism. And so I was talking about the sort of sane affair that you find in home stories, the generic uh, features, sort of like in a James Bond movie, you know, at some point he's going to say that he wants his cocktail shaken, not stirred. And likewise, you know, in a home story, okay, he'll do a little bit of preliminary deduction. I talked about that. But another thing that will very often happen is a weird colonial artifact will wash up in the clues for a case. A curious ivory-handled club or a strange alkaloid from India that's used as an untraceable poison. Or in the case of the sign of four, an actual human being, an Andaman Islander. The idea that London is the basin into which drains not just all these stories of Londoners, but all these stories from around the world. And Holmes becomes, from that point of view, the exemplary figure who can trace those invisible lines. That, to me, is the logic of the internet before there's an internet. The idea of simultaneity. Yes. The idea of transparency, Mm -hmm. right? The object revealing its past to the, the observer. Yeah. Yep. In a Hence sense. the importance of fog, because you always yes. need the fog in order to read through the fog. Yeah. If you took the fog out of Victorian London, it would look like 2024 Times Square. And that's just too transparent. It has to be, you need the fog to maintain enough opacity to tell the story. It's crazy. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you're absolutely right. Even like the idea of the shop front, which I'm associating now with London. I don't know if that's where, I'm pretty sure that 
the English had something to do in that innovation of the the lit shop front, the Christmas shop front. Um, they are a nation of shopkeepers. They are. That's and yeah, I think Who's, Adolf Hitler who said, said that? that. That's like a famous H- line. Hitler. Hitler oh, said okay. that. Oh, Jesus. There I go. <laughs> you just there quoted I go Adolf again, Hitler. quoting Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're onto something there. As mundane and historical and material as Victorian London was in time, it also has, just like Sherlock Holmes, you know, Sherlock Holmes, you said, is a scientist, but he is such a scientist that he attains to the mystical. Yeah. And maybe for better and for worse, London is both a city in history and a city outside of history. It's not the shining city on the hill. It's not the new Jerusalem. I mean, Jack the Ripper told us where this city lies. He starts his letter by situating us. He starts with the words, from hell. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>